through 13. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, you can find a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. It's the black book in uh, your pew rack, and you'll find today's scripture reading on page 1029. Revelation chapter 3. And verses 7 through 13, page 1029 of your Pew Bibles. We have been in the midst of a series of sermons on the book of Revelation together, and more particularly in recent weeks, we have been studying the letters to the seven churches. And these are letters from the Lord Jesus Christ, who currently reigns and rules from the Father's right hand in heaven. And these were seven letters that he wrote to seven distinct churches uh, at the end of the first century A.D., seven distinct churches that would be found today in the western part of the nation of Turkey. But in these seven letters, we find uh, a message from the Lord Jesus Christ to the church in every age. And that's why we study these today, because these are very relevant words Uh, for us as well. And today we come uh, to the letter to the church in Philadelphia. This is not the letter to the church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, but to the ancient city of Philadelphia in Asia Minor. But these, again, are words that are relevant for churches in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and in West Springfield, Massachusetts, as well, in the day and age in which we live. So let's now hear from God's word of Revelation chapter 3, beginning at verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, The words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. I know your works. Behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. I know that you have but little power, and yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet. And they will learn that I have loved you. Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven, and my own new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. This ends this reading in God's word. Let's look again to the Lord in prayer. Uh, Lord, it is our prayer that we would have ears today to hear uh, what the Spirit says uh, to the churches. Lord, give us an understanding heart and grant that we would believe your truth 
and that we would obey all that you call us to do for the glory of your name, we pray in Jesus' name. Uh, Amen. In the 1968 Summer Olympics in Mexico City, uh, there was a marathon runner from Tanzania. His name was John Stephen Aquare. 74 men began that marathon race. Uh, 17 of them did not finish. Uh, the very last to finish in Mexico City was John Stephen Aquare. One hour, five minutes, and one second after the winner. You see, as the race began that day, John Aquare tripped and fell. His leg was cut and he was injured. But nonetheless, he got up and he limped through the remainder of the 26 miles of that race. Now, 17 other men who were not injured for one reason or another, perhaps it was the altitude in Mexico City, uh, did not finish. But by the time that uh, John Aquare finished the race, the stadium was mostly empty. Uh, There were but a handful of faithful supporters still remaining. And in the interview afterward, he was asked this question, well, why, being injured, did you finish that race? And he said these words. He said, my country did not send me 5,000 miles to start a race. They sent me 5,000 miles to finish a race. Well, dear friends, you and I have been called by the sovereign grace of Almighty God uh, not only to start the Christian life, but to finish the Christian life as well. And to finish it for the glory of God. And this isn't always an easy thing because we face many obstacles Uh, along the way. You and I face many things that discourage us in the Christian life. We're part of the church, and the church seems small and out of the way, and in the eyes of most people, not very relevant. We face the the discouragement of difficult trials. We experience weariness in the Christian life, and we don't know if we can just Keep on going on. Uh, We face the lore of the world. It can sometimes seem attractive, and perhaps at times you even fantasize about what it would be to not be a Christian. What it would be like to live a life with no obligation uh, to the church. Sundays to spend however you want to spend them. What it would be like to live according to the values of the world. On top of that, you and I in the Christian life face the obstacle of the assaults of an evil one, a real Satan, who seeks to attack us subtly and not so subtly in a myriad of ways. Dear friends, there are lots of obstacles and difficulties in the Christian life. And yet the Lord calls us not only to begin the Christian life, but to finish it as well, to persevere. And that's why this letter to the church in Philadelphia is so important and so relevant for you and me uh, today. This is one of two letters out of these seven 
where there is no rebuke of the church. The other was the second letter, the letter to the church in Smyrna. But both to the church in Smyrna and to the church in Philadelphia, Christ has no words of rebuke, but words instead of commendation and encouragement. And he commends them for the way that they have persevered, but presses them on to do it even further and gives them promises that will help them along the way. And so that's what I want us to consider uh, today. This same call going to you and to me to not only begin, but to finish the Christian life well. Two points, uh, two simple points that we're going to consider. First of all, we're going to see that the sovereign Christ commends perseverance. The sovereign Christ commends perseverance. The second point is going to be this. Uh, that the sovereign Christ gives three promises to his persevering people. The sovereign Christ gives three promises. And you see, that's a preacher's trick to actually get more points in under the second point. But the the sovereign Christ gives uh, three promises to his persevering people. Well, first of all, I want us to consider this, that the sovereign Christ commends perseverance. We've already said, perseverance in the Christian life is not an easy thing. It wasn't an easy thing for the church in Philadelphia either. Uh, This first century church, no doubt, was small. Uh, They were in a city where most people uh, believed in some of the pagan gods of uh, the Roman Roman and Greek world. Uh, but it also was a city in which there was a large contingent of Jewish people. And this sizable Jewish community in Philadelphia uh, was openly opposed to the church. They did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And so they challenged the church's doctrine. They pressured the members of the church to leave. And no doubt this is why they're referred to in verse 9 of our passage uh, as a synagogue of Satan that they were actually doing uh, the purposes of the evil one in persecuting uh, the church of Jesus Christ. And so the church of Philadelphia was pressured in many ways. And yet, despite all of that, they remained steadfast to God. Verse 8, I know your works, Jesus says. And then at the end of that verse, he says, You have kept my word and have not denied my name. They remained faithful to the truth as it was in Jesus. You see that the primary challenge that the church in Philadelphia faced concerned the person and work of Jesus Christ. As I said, the Jews denied that Jesus was the Messiah. And against this challenge, the Christian church had to steadfastly proclaim Christ's uniqueness as the only Savior of men and women. They had to steadfastly proclaim the sufficiency of Christ's death on the cross to take away our sins. They had to steadfastly proclaim Christ's authority as the risen and ascended Lord and King who has absolute demand upon uh, their lives. They had to remain faithful to his word and not deny his name. Isn't it interesting that not a lot has changed over 2,000 years? What are the chief, uh, uh, the chief threats that we face as 
a church, does it not center on the person of Christ primarily? And we, in our day, need to continue to not deny His name. Proclaim Jesus as the only Savior of sinners. Not one way to God, but the way to God. Proclaim the sufficiency of His death, the triumph of His resurrection, that He alone is Lord and King over our lives. Might it be true that we, just like the church in Philadelphia, are those who keep His word and not deny the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 10, there is an interesting uh, little phrase that talks about their perseverance. It says, because you have kept my word about patient endurance. Now, literally, those words say, you have kept the word of my perseverance. And the reference really seems to be even to the perseverance of Jesus himself, that Jesus Christ was one who persevered. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. He, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. And just as our Savior persevered, so you and I are also called to persevere. We are not doing anything that our Master did not first do for us. To persevere is part of the warp and woof of what it means to follow in our Master's steps. What a message this is uh, for us today. We are called to be those who patiently endure. I think one of the saddest things that you and I can ever see is when we see those who once appeared to walk with Christ do so no longer. As 1 John 2.19 says that they went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And isn't it the case? I think everyone in this room knows some who at one time professed to be part of the people of God, professed Christ, and who are not walking with the Savior. But in the same way that that ought to deeply sadden our hearts, it also ought to make us rejoice and be extremely encouraged when we do see those who professed Christ, even decades ago, still walking with Him today. Dear friends, we need to be encouraged by that and see that as an accomplishment of the almighty grace and power of God. When we see those who confess certain bedrock truths about Christ 30 or 40 or even 50 or 60 years ago and who have gone through many discouragements, and have had the storms of trial beat against them tremendously. But nonetheless, here they still are, worshiping God, serving Christ's church, loving God's people, grasping onto His Word. That's a beautiful thing. It's a glorious triumph of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. We are to persevere. But there's one other aspect to this perseverance uh, that is pointed out for us in these verses. And it's found in verse 8. In verse 8, the Lord Jesus points out one other way in which they must persevere. And that is to persevere in their evangelistic witness to the world around them. He says, I have set before you, behold, I have set before you an open door which no one is able to shut. 
Uh, this language of an open door is frequently used throughout the New Testament to speak of a special opportunity for witness and mission to the world around us. So in Acts 14.27, Paul and Barnabas report back to Antioch of their missionary journeys, and they say, God opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. Or 1 Corinthians 16.9, Paul says, I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has been opened to me, and there are many adversaries. Or Colossians 4.3, among others, Uh, God may open to us a door for the word uh, to declare the mystery of Christ. He requests prayer for an open door. And so here, when we are told by the Lord Jesus that he has opened a door for the church in Philadelphia, he means that he has opened a door for witness to the world around them. That they are to persevere, not just in, as it were, a defensive posture, grasping onto and holding onto the faith of the Lord Jesus Christ, but they are also to persevere in their, as it were, offensive witness to the world around them. That the the Lord Jesus will build his kingdom even through this little church in Philadelphia. And this just does capture part of what it means to be a persevering people, a persevering church. A persevering church is always a missions-minded church. It is a church that not only loves God so much and believes the gospel of His Son, but also loves other people enough that we desire to see them brought into the kingdom of the Son of Jesus Christ. Or the the Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Do we do that? Do we seek to persevere in these things? Looking at the open door that is for us. I just wonder for you personally, are you praying for particular individuals that you will have an opportunity to share the Lord Jesus Christ with them? Are you praying for their salvation? Are you looking for opportunities to tell people about the Lord whom you have come to know? Are we as a church seeking to find ways to reach out to the community around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ? And when people do come among us and they hear the gospel, are we quick to enfold them and to seek to lead them to know the Lord Jesus whom we also have come to know? Are we as a church, those who are excited about mission work overseas? And do we give, hopefully, praying that the Lord will bless those monies to bring yet others far away to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ? Do we pray for our missionaries? In other words, do we see the open doors that God has given the church of Jesus Christ in order to spread the gospel? He gave an open door to the church in Philadelphia. And he calls us to persevere, not only in holding on to the faith that is, uh, that is given in the Bible, but to look for these open doors as well, which the Lord has set before us, in order to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. Oh, what a calling this is from the sovereign Christ. And dear friends, we do at times grow discouraged and frustrated and upset even. 
But dear friends, we need to be encouraged to not give up. To not turn somewhere else or try something different, but rather the answer is that by God's grace might we persevere in those things that He has called us to. To believe His Word, to serve His people, to look for opportunities uh, for out, outreach and uh, mission. The Sovereign Christ, dear friends, commends perseverance. It delights your Lord when you, by His grace, persevere, press on uh, in the faith. But now, secondly, I want us to see an encouragement, or uh, uh, really how the Sovereign Christ gives three promises to His persevering people. This is to be an encouragement for you and I to persevere. The Sovereign Christ gives three promises persevering people. Now, before looking at the three distinct promises that he gives in our passage, just want to zero in on those words, the Sovereign Christ. Why did I use that language? It's because that's the very way that he presents himself in this letter. Did you notice that in verse 7? Who is it that's speaking to us? Well, he describes himself as the words of the Holy One. Uh, the true one. These are two words that come with all the overtones of deity. Uh, frequently, it is only the Lord God who is described as the holy and true one. In fact, later in Revelation 6.10, uh, the martyrs are going to cry out, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge your, our, our blood. And so the words holy and true come with the overtones of deity. And it's how Jesus Christ here is described. Jesus Himself is the sovereign and majestic God. And He is described here as the one who opens and no one will shut. And shut and shuts and no one opens. This is actually a reference in uh, your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 22 and verse 22. And in that passage, uh, there's a description of a man named Eliakim, who is made a kind of the palace manager uh, for the king of Judah. So it is Eliakim who controls access to the king. It says there that the key of the house of David, God will lay on his shoulder. So he shall open and no one shall shut, and he shall shut and no one shall open. And so the power of the key in that reference symbolizes the authority uh, to who is allowed in and out of the king's presence. And here it's saying that this key actually belongs to the Lord Jesus himself. Eliakim was but a type, a pointer towards the Lord Jesus. And it is Jesus Himself who has all authority in heaven on earth and earth. The key of David has been given to Him. And none shall be allowed into the Father's presence apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. Dear friends, it is this sovereign uh, uh, Christ... This Christ who is himself the magnificent, majestic God who is giving us these promises. You know, if I were to stand up here and to give you a, a series of promises, you would say, uh, that's nice, Rob, but you know, you're not always the most reliable person. You're not very powerful. Who knows if these things will come to pass? But dear friends, when it is our Lord Jesus Christ giving promises... 
we know that He will fulfill every promise that He's given. And so remember that as we go through these three things. It is the sovereign Jesus, the one who holds the key of David. Friends, He is the one who is going to give us these promises to His persevering people. Well, what are these three promises? And we're going to actually notice that there are three different points where a promise is made in this passage. Uh, In uh, uh, verse 9, we're going to see twice there the word, I will make. And then in verse 10, we're going to see the word, I will keep. And then in verse 12, we're going to again see, uh, 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 I will make and I will write uh, uh, there. And those are going to be combined into a promise. So here we see a number of things which God himself is going to do. Well, the first of these three promises is this. It is the promise of an effective ministry. The promise of an effective ministry. We see this in verse 9. There he says, Behold, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. Behold, I will make them come and bow down before your feet and they will learn that I have loved you. What is this promise? Well, the promise is actually that the very Jews who currently deny that Jesus is the Messiah and who are persecuting the church in Philadelphia, that some of these Jews are going to come and going to bow down at their feet. And By the way, the language here for bowing down is not the idea of a grudging worship, but rather of a joyful, willing worship. Every time, at least in the book of Revelation, that 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 word is used, it is speaking of a willing, voluntary worship. And so the picture here is, is that some from this synagogue of Satan those who are Jews, enemies of the church of Jesus Christ, are going to be converted and added to the church. That's the the promise. They're going to acknowledge that the living God loves His people. He loves His church. And they're going to desire to be a part of it. Actually, in verse 9, we have a wonderful fulfillment of a variety of different passages, both from Isaiah and from the Psalms. I just want to read one of those verses. I'm going to read Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. Isaiah chapter 60 and verse 14. I want you to hear what this promise says. It says there, uh, speaking to uh, God's people in the Old Covenant, Israel, that the sons of those who afflicted you shall come bending low to you. All who despised you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Do you get the picture here? In the Old Testament, those who despised Israel, they despised the people of God, and the promise is, is that they will come bending low to the people of God and bow down and say, you are the city of the Lord, Zion, the Holy One of Israel. 
And the idea is in Revelation chapter 3 that those words in Isaiah 60 are fulfilled, but fulfilled in an unusual way now that the Gentiles have believed upon the name of Jesus and those who are ethnic Jews have denied him, that those who have denied the name of the Lord Jesus, ethnic Jews, are going to come and bow at the feet of the true Israel, the Gentiles who have embraced the Messiah and become part of the people of God. What a glorious and wonderful picture this is of them being brought into the church of Jesus Christ. Dear friends, what an encouragement this must have been to the church in Philadelphia. They felt weak and powerless and helpless. They surely would have been small in number. Seemed irrelevant. Did you notice those words, by the way, earlier in uh, verse uh, 8? It says, I know that you have but little power. They seemed overwhelmed in the culture in which they lived. But the promise was, was that through their faithful, persevering witness, others, even others who now despised them and persecuted them, were going to come and bow and worship alongside of them the name of Jesus Christ. And friends, that same promise is given to the church of Jesus Christ today. What's one of the reasons that you and I ought to persevere? It's because as we persevere... It is this church, the church, that will be the very instrument used by God to save sinners, to bring them from darkness to light. Friends, we have that promise. Isn't that glorious? I mean, if you think about it, friends, what the Lord is calling us to do, He's saying, West Springfield Church, continue to preach my word, continue to serve me, continue to love one another and reach out with the gospel. And as you do, in these very pews, I'm going to bring some from death to life. Wow! We get to be part of that. The building of the kingdom of God. He's saying to us as a church, as you put that money into the offering plate, it's going to go and support Alex and Maggie Halbert, who are going to be part of a church planting work in Honduras. There are going to be people who are converted in Honduras partly through your faithful persevering labors here. You get to have a part in the building of the kingdom of God. What a glorious thing that is. And what an encouragement to faithfulness. You and I can't convert anyone, but we have a sovereign Christ who can and who does. And he does through the efforts of his persevering First promise is a promise of an effective ministry. Second promise that we're given here is in verse 10, and it is the promise of preservation through trial. Preservation through trial. Uh, Verse 10, Because you have kept my word about patient endurance, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, uh, some use this text to teach a kind of secret, silent rapture of the church before the great tribulation, uh, immediately prior to Christ's second coming. Um, But however, uh, that view, uh, I believe, simply is not consistent with the many, many other scriptures that clearly teach that the people of God will be present on earth when Christ uh, descends on the clouds of heaven So what is it then that this verse is teaching? It is teaching this. 
by the hour of trial, by that language of the hour and trial, I think that that may include partly that uh, uh, final period of intensified tribulation prior to Christ's second coming. But I think it also includes all of the tribulations and trials and troubles that will come upon God's people throughout the entire world. And to be kept from that hour of trial doesn't mean to be, as it were, snatched away from it so as not to experience any tribulation, but rather to experience God's blessing in and through the tribulation. It is the promise that whatever comes to us comes from a father's hand and he will not allow the faith of his children to fail and he will preserve us and have his hand upon us no matter what comes your way. And what a promise this is. Because sometimes uh, we are afraid of the future. What's going to happen tomorrow, next year? What plague? What, uh, what sudden accident? What disease? What persecution? What's going to come in the future? I don't know. But we have a God who does. And we have a God who promises to keep His people in the midst of those trials. What a wonderful promise that is. Ye fearful saints, the hymn says, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. What an encouragement to be persevering. We persevere because we know that we have a God who will take care of us. Third promise is this then. Not only a promise of an effective ministry, the promise of preservation through trial, but the third promise to Christ's persevering people is this. And it's the best of them all. It's the promise of a glorious future. The promise of a glorious future. And we find this in verses uh, 11 and 12. He says in verse 11, I am coming soon. Hold fast what you have so that no one may seize your crown. I am coming soon. Now this could refer to Christ's coming, as it were, the coming that he continually does by means of his Holy Spirit. It's coming especially to bless his people. But I think the special reference here and throughout the book of Revelation is to the second appearance of our Lord. When he comes on the clouds of heaven, and he wants us to lift our eyes and to see that indeed his return is near. He is coming soon. Now you might say, wait a second here. Pastor, 2,000 years have passed since when these words were first written. Is he really coming soon? Is this promise void? And the answer is no, this promise still stands. In the grand scheme of redemptive history, the next great thing that is going to happen after the death and resurrection of Christ and the giving of the Spirit, dear friends, the next great thing to happen is the return of our Lord in the clouds of heaven. And He would have His people always watch, always be ready, always live in light of that day. For compared to the millions of millions of millions of years that are going to be eternity, the 2,000 that we have waited so far is but short. 
he says to us, be always looking for the return of your Lord. And friends, that promise of his return should make us eager to persevere. It's like if, you know, you know, if you're in the weight room, okay? Uh, you know, if you're like me, we don't, it's been a while since you've been in the weight room. But for some of you younger folk out there, if you're in the weight room, okay, and you're, you're doing some bench presses, all right, and the person who's spotting you, and he, he says, if he were to come to you and say, okay, I only want you to do 100 more, what would you do? Wait on the rack. I'm not going to do 100 more. But if he looks at you and he says, okay, just three more. You're almost there. Three more. You can do it. You strain with every muscle, and you get that bar up. And then he says, just, just two more. Come on. And you strain, and you get that up. And Come on. Last one. I know you have it in you. Last one, and then you can rest. And you're straining. Last one, and you finally get the bar up. And then the end has come. It's as if the Lord Jesus Christ is saying the same thing to you. He's saying just a little longer. Not much more. Before you know it, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to return on the clouds of heaven. Glory yet awaits. Can't you persevere just a little longer for my sake? And what's going to happen when our Lord Jesus Christ returns? Verse 12 gives us, uh, uh, tells us something of the glories of His return. And friends, it's a description so glorious, it's hard to get your minds around. He says in verse 12, that the one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. What does that mean? Well, he's not here talking about a literal pillar in a physical temple. Okay? But Revelation 21 says that in God's new creation, there will be no temple for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb is going to be its temple. So what does it mean to be a pillar in the temple of my God? It means, well, a pillar, let me put it this way, a pillar is a picture of stability and permanence. And so the picture is, is where your Lord is going to rule and reign uh, uh, in the new heavens and new earth, you are going to be there with Him and there forevermore. You'll never have to leave. You're a pillar in the temple of your God. But then following that, there's then a threefold promise of a new name. Okay, It says, never shall he go out of it. But then it says, and I will write on him, first of all, the name of my God. Now a name represents identification. Who are you identified with? Who do you have fellowship with? And so it's saying that in this new heavens and new earth, this divine image is, as it were, going to be inscribed upon us in greater measure than ever before. And we shall experience the closest communion and fellowship and likeness that it is possible for us to have, each one of us being a reflection of the glory and grace and majesty of our God. His name is going to be written upon us. But then there's a second aspect to this name. It says then, and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem. This reminds us, friends, that heaven is not going to be experienced as solitary individuals, but rather, as we were reminded in Sunday school, it's with the congregation, that is, with the redeemed community, 
in heaven, we are going to be there with all of the people of God. And we are going to participate fully in the joys of the communion of the saints. And the idea here is that the name of that city of our God is going to be written upon us. And so we are going to belong, as it were, in that community. Each of us, as we display the glory of God in ourselves, we are, as it were, going to reflect that glory back upon one another as we together form a grand harmony manifesting the glory of God's grace. It's the name of the new Jerusalem written upon us. But then, thirdly, the third aspect to this new name, verse 12, it says, and my own new name. That is, the name of Christ will be upon us. And what's the new name of Christ? Well, that refers to the fact that we are going to see Him and know Him not in his lowly state of humiliation, where he was seen and known in his incarnation. But dear friends, we are going to see him in all of his resplendent glory, having finished his mediatorial work as he reigns and rules over the kingdom of his Father. And there it is that name of the glorified Lord Jesus that is going to be placed upon each one of his glorified saints. And Jesus Christ Himself is going to be the light in that place. Each one of us, as it were, bearing His name, a distinct revelation of the glory of our Savior as we reign with Him. What a picture this is. Even to describe these things, I, I don't feel that it can begin to do justice. But the point is, with such a future as that ahead of us, how can we not persevere to the end? Christ has called us not only to begin the Christian life, but by His grace and by His power, and it's only by His power, but to finish it as well. Take to heart these promises and serve Him, looking to witness for His sake, looking to read your Bible and to love one another and to continue to believe upon His name. Persevere in these things. Until the end. Might the Lord help us to do that. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you so much for these promises of your word and for the commendation of perseverance. Lord, we ask, Lord in heaven, that we would now be a patiently enduring people. That we would see the open door that you have set before us. An open door for effective ministry. That, Lord, we would continue in this path until that day when we shall see you on the clouds of heaven. Oh, Lord, our God, hold on to us. Bless us, we pray. Help us to love one another and to love you, chief of all. And, Lord, as we come to the table now, might we be reminded of the reality of Christ crucified for us, Christ risen and ascended, Christ, who is our Lord and our Savior. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we prepare to hear.